Thank you, worship team. That was a beautiful set. I was standing in the back looking over our church family and that last song in the build-up and Arlene belting it out at the end with the band playing behind you. It was a joy to listen to. Thank you for leading us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Luke. We thank you for the church. We thank you that we can come and whether we engage you through song, through giving, through community, through the message or all the above, that we have the privilege of gathering together and doing it as a group of people coming to worship you. And God, we pray now that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up. And as we see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, we would be reminded about what kind of a game changer he really is. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What's the difference between a day off and the Sabbath? What's the difference between a day off and the Sabbath? It's not a trick question. It's not a gotcha moment. It's something to make you think. And how you answer that question is going to speak volumes in regards to how you see and how you view rest. Because I think all of us enjoy a day off, right? Whether we're students, whether we're retired, whether we're working full time, whether we're parents, we like having that day off. But what do you expect that day off to look like? Is the day off just a chance to catch up on chores? Is it a chance to go and run and do errands? Or is it a chance to do a different type of work than you would normally do beforehand? How we view a day off and how we view Sabbath are radically going to impact us. There's this promise from Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, and I think it captures us when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we read that, and we might be familiar with it. Maybe you have it memorized, and you think, but is it true, God? Because I don't necessarily feel rested. Sometimes I take a weekend off, or I go on holidays, and I come back, and I'm even more burdened and more overwhelmed than I was before I went on the holiday. And we need to be reminded how great the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is a part of a weekly rhythm where we not only rest, but restore our body, our soul, and our mind. It's Jesus inviting you to come into a rest with him that is so much greater than just taking a day off from the regular routine of life. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a Bible in the pew racks in front of you. If you're at home, you can certainly download an app on your phone or tablet or open up a laptop to follow along. Big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. And as you're flipping open to the passage, just a reminder of what's happened so far. First couple chapters of Luke, the birth narrative. We looked at that over uh, the Christmas season. Chapters 3 and chapters 4 are kind of this preparation for ministry. Jesus is getting baptized. Jesus goes out into the desert. He's tempted by the devil. Chapter 5 and chapter 6 are the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's starting to teach. He's starting to heal people. He casts out demons. We see these radical changes, and he calls the disciples that we looked at last week. And now the controversy begins. How is Jesus going to interact with the Pharisees? How is he going to interact with the crowds? And for those of you who enjoy taking notes, it's going to start with this. The Sabbath is misunderstood. This is chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, the disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? We're given this distinct impression that the Pharisees are not impressed with Jesus. And they want to catch him any chance they can. They want that gotcha moment. 
I remember being in junior high, I think I was in grade seven, and it was my first chance to try out for a school sports team. And so I'm walking down the hallway, I'm getting excited to go to volleyball tryouts, and one of the teachers grabs me and says, do you know what you just did? I looked at her and I said, I have no idea what I just did. And she said to me, I don't like your attitude. I said, I, I honestly don't know what I did wrong. And she said, with her teeth bared, you jumped in the hallway. And I thought, really? Little Johnny just got shoved into a locker a couple minutes ago. But if you want to pick on jumping, go right ahead. And it's like the disciples are thinking, are you serious? We're following the Sabbath. Why are you picking on us for getting a couple heads of grain and rubbing them together in our hands? The Jewish book of law is really quite short. There's 613 laws. That might sound like a lot, but when you think that that's the entirety of the law book, it's not overwhelming. I looked it up. Canada has just shy of 3.6 million laws that we're expected to follow. So here's the big one. It even makes God's top 10 list. Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. But with only 613 laws, the religious leaders had to figure out, well, how do we define work? How do we know if we've actually worked or not on the Sabbath day? And so the religious leaders got together and they created something called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is an oral collection of Jewish sayings. And this is what uh, an excerpt from the Mishnah says, all but admitting they're going in the wrong direction with the Sabbath. The rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair, for script scripture is scanty and rules many. And the Mishnah comes up with 39 rules of how to follow the Sabbath. These aren't part of the 613. These are 39 rules to follow one. And according to the Mishnah, and according to these Pharisees, these religious teachers of the law, they're looking at Jesus' disciples and said, you have broken the law on four accounts. You've reaped the grain, threshed the grain, winnowed the grain, and prepared the grain. Now, it's not like the disciples were walking through an acre of someone's farm field with big, massive scythes and cutting out this grain and taking it to a mill and pounding it down and then baking bread. It's the equivalent of walking by a raspberry bush, picking up a raspberry bush and tossing it in their mouth. But are you starting to see where the Pharisees misunderstood the Sabbath? Their focus is on not working rather than on rest. The focus for them is we can't work rather than on experiencing what God has in store for them. But how many times do we do the same thing? How many times do we say, whoa, 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 I'm not doing schoolwork, I'm just reading a textbook. You know, emails aren't really work, and there's something important going on, and I just need to do it. You know, I know I said, kids, that I would take you out, but we just need to stop by the work site just for a bit because Daddy needs to do something. And that's the problem. Our identity is so focused on what we're trying to accomplish, we have this increasingly difficult time enjoying Sabbath rest. How many times do we as parents go, whatever our kids want, I'll just do that, and we run ourselves ragged? How many times do we think to ourselves, you know, my boss thinks I'm a great worker. My employees think I'm a great coworker. I will bend over backwards so that people will continue thinking about that, even picking up extra shifts while knowing I need a, uh, a day off. Your identity is wrapped up in getting that perfect job. And so you do extra work at school. You do extra volunteering so it'll look good on your resume. 
You do whatever you can so that you will get the job you want because ultimately that's where your identity lies. And the Sabbath is saying, take a break from the emails. Take a break from working on school. Take a break from the job site. Rest in God's plan. My favorite definition of Sabbath that I've ever heard is Mark Buchanan who wrote an entire book on it and he said, if it feels like work, don't do it. But there's two aspects of the Sabbath. Both are being misunderstood here. We've talked a little bit about work, but we also need to deal a little bit about rest. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but for how many of you is Sabbath just another word for legalism and it's wrapped up a little bit nicer with a bow on top? It's the Sabbath day. We don't watch TV. It's the Sabbath. No, you cannot go out with your friends because you might get sweaty. It's the Sabbath. Sit there in the corner and don't be bored. You're like, that's not, that's not fun. The Sabbath becomes synonymous with legalism. About a decade ago, I was in uh, Jerusalem uh, during Easter. It was a great time, one of the best experiences of my life. And there was this group of Jews outside of an elevator, and I didn't think anything of it. And I walked up to the elevator, and I pushed the button. I walked in, and this flock of Jews walked behind me. It's the Sabbath. And Jews aren't allowed to work or make machines work. But for someone who's a dirty non-Jew, I can press all the buttons on that elevator for them to go exactly where they want. And you start to think, well, is this just a legalistic idea or does God have something better in store? The Sabbath is part of a weekly rhythm where we not only rest, but restore our body, our mind, our soul. I'm going to talk more about this at the end of the message, but think about this. What restores you and knits you back together at the end of a long week? What brings joy into your life and washes away the weariness? Is that not something you want to be a part of? Because the Sabbath is so much deeper and richer than the absence of work. It's recognizing God has something better in store and that true rest is found in him. And it leads us to our second point. The Sabbath belongs to Jesus. Picking up in verse 3. Jesus answered the Pharisees, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And then Jesus said, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. There's a little bit of a tennis match going on here. When the Pharisees say to them, why are you breaking the Sabbath? It is a warning. We are coming after you and we're about to make your life really miserable. And I imagine the disciples kind of rolling their eyes like, are they serious? Is this kind of like the kid jumping in the hallway? Are they really going to jump on us for something so small? But Jesus doesn't turn around and rebuke his disciples. He looks right at the Pharisees and he rebukes them. It's this oratory device where they basically say, hey, you know what? You think you have it understood? I'll tell you what. Have you not read, O oh, great teachers of the law, what David did when he was running away from King Saul? The story Jesus is referring to is in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Context is always helpful. Saul has just tried to kill David. Saul's son, Jonathan, says to David, my dad is trying to kill you. You cannot stay at the palace any longer. It is best for you to run away. So David crabs a couple of his men and they just book it. And they arrive at this place called Nob and they find a temple there, a synagogue there. And they go in and they say to the priest, hey, look, we need bread. And the priest says, here you go. 
priest responds exactly like this in chapter 21, verse 4. I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. And here's what's so important about this interaction. According to Jewish law, the consecrated bread is only for priests. And the priest doesn't even bat an eye at giving it to David and his men. The bread is only for priests according to the Jewish law, one of the 613. The priest doesn't bat an eye. Now watch the parallels. Jesus is saying, I am like David. My disciples are like Jesus' followers. And the priest in this story doesn't get mad at David and his followers. So you Pharisees, what are you going to do? The Pharisees find themselves in a conundrum. Neither the priest in this story nor the narrator give any comment about breaking a ceremonial law. Did you catch that? Neither the priests nor the narrator give any comment about breaking the ceremonial law. The Pharisees are stunned into silence. And then Jesus has the audacity in their mind to say, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. If this leaves your head spinning a little bit, allow me to fill in the gaps. There are three types of laws in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Three types of laws. The first one is a civil law. The civil law is basically saying, hey, if you have uh, a deck on the top of your house, please build um, a guardrail around that. Another type of law is the moral law. The moral law would say something like, do not murder, do not lie. The third type is the ceremonial law. What do the priests do in offering sacrifices? How does the Sabbath work? Those kind of things. Here's why it's important. The civil law is for a particular time and place. In Edmonton, we don't have to follow the Jewish civil law. Most of us probably don't have decks on the top of our house. So we don't have to put a railing around our roof. That would just be weird. The moral laws for all people at all times in all places. We're not supposed to murder. We're not supposed to lie either. But this is fascinating. Jesus is saying the ceremonial restrictions of law are to give way to human need. And that's a game changer. And here's why it's a game changer. It means the small business owner who owns her own place and has worked really hard for six days and is looking forward to taking a day off and then one of her employees calls in sick, she can still go to the office and not feel like she's breaking the Sabbath law. For the single parent who has worked incredibly hard all week doing all the things around the house, looking for a day off, looking for a day of rest with her children, recognizes, oh, my kid is sick, but I'm not breaking the law. There is a freedom that's being offered here. And Jesus is saying, true rest doesn't come from a day. True rest comes from me. I am the one who will restore your body. I am the one who will restore your mind. I will restore your soul. And this is so much greater than a day off. Because finding true rest in Jesus means though we have more work to do, his work is complete. And this is the good news of the passage. This is the game changer. It's about Jesus saying, in spite of all the work that's yet to do, we can rest in Jesus because his work is finished. Do you remember the final words he says on the cross? It is finished. 
because the work for even the most demanding conscience has been fulfilled. Jesus has completed the civic law and paid all of his taxes. Jesus has completed the ceremonial law, becoming the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus has completed the moral law, saying, I, while I have not sinned, I am becoming sin for you so that you might have the righteousness of God that only comes through me. The Lord of the Sabbath is the one who says, I will restore your body. I will restore your mind. I will restore your soul. It's a total game changer. And it's not just in the Old Testament and it's not just in the Gospels, but the Apostle Paul says it too in Colossians chapter two. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are shadows of the things that were to come. The reality is found in Christ. The Sabbath belongs to Jesus. The final part of our passage almost feels like Luke is saying, here, let me give you a real-life illustration about how great the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is restorative. This is verses 6 to 11. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come, stand here. And he rose and he stood. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do with Jesus. Imagine being in the Sabbath that day being in the synagogue that day, pardon me. And you look to your left and there is Jesus. He is the Messiah. Some people are saying he's the son of God and he's teaching with authority and with power and with wisdom and you're captured by the words that are coming out of his mouth. And then you look to the right and there's Pharisees. And there's a group of them. And they're kind of murmuring to each other and they're pointing at a guy and you look over and he has a withered hand. Are you really paying attention to what Jesus is saying? Or are you looking forward to a showdown that looks like it's about to take place? What is Jesus going to do? Going back to the Mishnah, the Mishnah says there are three times you can heal on the Sabbath. If a life is in danger, if a baby is born, or the circumcision of your male child on the eighth day. There are no other reasons to do any healing on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees are thinking, hey, there's a guy with a withered hand. But he has six days he can come see Jesus. Surely Jesus knows this and won't heal him today, will you? And I'm guessing Jesus can feel the tension in the room. Pharisees plotting in secret. Jesus saying, I'm going to do all my work right here in the open. So Jesus calls the man with the withered hand in front of the crowd and he asks the people there, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And you can hear a pin drop. And Jesus looks around the room, he looks at the Pharisees, they're not going to say a word. He looks at me and you, we're not saying a word because we don't want to get in the middle of this. But the Mishnah does say something else doesn't just talk about work. It says, you know, the Sabbath is time for good deeds as well, for charity, for mercy, for worship. Who in their right mind would forbid good work on the Sabbath? Wouldn't that be a perversion of God's design? Wouldn't that be tantamount to doing evil? 
And Jesus scans the crowd. His brother will later say in James chapter 4, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it since. The silence extends across the room. Finally, Jesus says, put out your hand, and it's totally restored. And the Pharisees are angry. They're furious with Jesus. Who does he think he is healing on the Sabbath? And if you have really good memories, you might think two weeks ago the Pharisees were furious for a different reason. It's not the same word. The word here is that they lost their mind. They have gone into an irrational rage, a blind fury. They are so angry that Jesus has the audacity to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus never broke the Sabbath. And he never broke the laws in the Mishnah. He spoke. And a person was restored. The Sabbath is restorative. And here's Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, saying to the people 2,000 years ago and saying to us, do you want real rest? Do you want your body to be restored, your mind to be restored? Do you want your soul to be restored? This idea of rest has been there from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, at the end of the first chapter, we read, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. It's beautiful. At the end of the week, God looked back at what he had accomplished and he saw, it, thought, isn't that good? At the beginning of chapter two, he says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had done. So on the seventh day, he rested from his work. And then it's almost like the author thought, you know, maybe people don't get it. Maybe, maybe I need to repeat myself. And right away in verse three, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all his work, all the creating that he had done. And maybe you're listening to this message and going, Dave, I know it's a monologue, but I've got a question. What if my work isn't good? What if I've worked all week and there's still more to do? There's more emails to answer. There's more expectations from my boss. My clients need more things. I have more work to do. Maybe I've looked at what I've done over the last week and it just ain't that good and I need to go back and fix it. What do I do then? Two comments. In 1 Samuel 21, here in Luke 6 and in Colossians 2, it says it's not a sin to work on the Sabbath. But it would be foolish for me to just make this blanket statement, not knowing your situation and where you're at. You know what's expected of you at work. You know what's expected of you from your employer. You know what your teacher wants from you. And maybe it's totally different than what others are expecting. And maybe you know that if you don't go into work on that seventh day, you might lose your job. If you don't write that paper, you might fail the class. And there's freedom here, and God is saying, it's okay. But I'd also like to offer a caution. I work six days a week, almost every week. Obviously, I'm here on Sundays, I'm preaching. But throughout the rest of the week, I'm here Monday to Friday, first thing in the morning until I go home. On Friday afternoons, I put the finishing touches on my sermon. I look back over my message and I think to myself, ugh, that illustration isn't great, but I don't quite know how to make it better. You know, my outline's decent, but it could be a little bit better. That part of the message is a little bit clunky. But I've put in six days, and I've prayed, and I've asked God to bless the work, and I move on. Second comment. 
we flip from the opening chapter of Genesis 1 to the opening chapter of Exodus. Now God's people are in slavery. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives better with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all the hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. I think this is important to think about. Are you a slave to your work? Do you actually have to go into work on that seventh day or do you just think you have to go into work? Because work is a ruthless and cruel master and it will never have enough. There is always more work to do. Always more expected of us. But as followers of Jesus, our identity isn't rooted in what we've accomplished. Our identity is rooted in Jesus. There will always be times to work seven days. But who or what is the driving force behind those expectations? After the Israelites walk around the desert for 40 years, there's a second time that they are given the Ten Commandments. The first time, they've just come out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea. It's probably a week to three, a month later that they arrive at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments are given. They've wandered around for 40 years. They're now about to enter the Promised Land, and Moses speaks to them. There are probably uh, well over a million people at this time, and Moses stands up before the heads of Israel, and he says, here is what I need you to know, and I need you to understand, and he repeats the Ten Commandments a second time. But he changes not the commandment themselves, but what he says surrounding it. This is what he says about the Sabbath. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus' last words on the cross, it is finished. Because the work of even the most demanding conscience has been fulfilled. The author of Hebrews says it beautifully in chapter, um, chapter 4, I believe it is. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter into that rest. One final comment for those of you who might not be practicing the Sabbath. Maybe you're a single parent Maybe you're a small business owner. Maybe you're a medical professional working in a worldwide pandemic and you just can't take a day off right now. It's okay. But here's what I want you to ask yourself. Who's holding you accountable to keeping the Sabbath? If you're married, do you say to your spouse, I know this is a rough few weeks. I know this is a rough month. But when the kids are on spring break, I promise I'm going to take the week off. If you're a single parent and you're thinking, I just can't do this anymore. I'm working full time. My evenings and weekends are committed to the kids. Talk to another single parent. What are they doing during this difficult time? Maybe you're a small business owner and you don't know how to take that time off. Connect with another small business owner. This is what the community of God is all about. Journeying together about finding how can we best live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And maybe you're new to the church and you're like, Dave, I have no idea where I would even start something like that. Email the office. Ask for some guidance. Ask for some direction. Ask to talk to one of the pastors. We will gladly connect with you. Now the fun stuff. I hope this is where practicing the Sabbath captures your heart and imagination. And so you recognize how beautiful this day really is. You see, God is really smart. 
He recognized that if the Sabbath was from midnight one night to 11.59 p.m. the next day, that some of us would work till 11.45 on Saturday night and then start working again at 4.45 on Monday morning. And God says, that's not how the Sabbath works. The Sabbath is from sundown to sundown. For our North American context, from supper till supper. And it's an invitation to change your weekly rhythm, an invitation to engage in what God has in store for you, to catch, your, to catch a glimpse of heaven one day a week. It's having a meal together with your friends or family or both, with no big activities, no time to rush off, no reason to go put the kids to bed right away, but to recognize that God is inviting you into something special. To stay up late that night, maybe you're hanging out with friends or playing games or watching a movie or going camping, knowing that you can sleep in the next day and the clock doesn't determine your schedule. It's not filled with activities or chores or errands to run, but it's an invitation to grab a hold of what God has said and enter into his rest. Three questions for you, super easy, you'll remember them. What does your body need? If you're 20 years old, that might look different than if you're 70 years old. If you work a manual labor job, that might be different than if you're a desk jockey. What does your body need to feel rested and restored on the Sabbath? Do you need to sleep in and just have a lazy day around the house? Do you need to wake up at the crack of dawn, grab a couple buddies, and go hiking? Or maybe it's a mixture of both. What does your body need? That's the easiest one. What does your mind need? The beautiful thing about the God who we worship is it's a holistic religion. And God is saying, I care about your body, I care about your mind, I care about your soul. And just like some of us work manual labor jobs and some of us have desk jobs, some of us ha have to use our mind all week long and it's intense work and some of us have jobs where it's really quite mindless and easy. And on the Sabbath, you want to grab something that, that challenges you and makes you think. And perhaps this idea of the Sabbath grabs you. Here's a book that is fantastic. If it's possible to start a new genre of writing, this man has done it. Uh, it is called Garden City. His name is John Mark Homer. He's down in Oregon. This book is fantastic. It's super easy to read, but will also make you think. It will grab you deep into the idea of work and rest and also help you realize what your picture is in God's grand story. Maybe you're like me and all week long you're using your mind and you're thinking and you're working and you're strategizing and you're planning and you're reading and you're writing. My Friday nights, we put the kids to bed and my wife and I turn on a TV and we typically watch a movie and it's great. And we stay up late and we sleep in the next day and it's wonderful probably know what's next. What does your soul need? This is the one that takes a little bit of thoughtfulness. This is the one that you have to engage with it a little bit more. I think the first thing that we need to recognize is the Sabbath is, first of all, to remember what God has done for us. And if you're here today and this is your Sabbath, that is awesome. And I hope the music speaks to you, and I hope the prayer speaks to you, and I hope the message speaks to you, and I hope the community speaks to you, and that's great. For those of you who are watching online, I think this is so valuable because it's not just listening to a sermon and listening to music. It's about engaging in the community that's online and interacting with the online host. But maybe Sunday isn't your Sabbath. Maybe you're like me and the Sabbath is on a Saturday or a Monday or some other day of the week. What restores your relationship with God? Is it listening to a great worship song? 
Is it picking up one of the Psalms or a passage of scripture and just diving in deep and engaging with it and wrestling with it and seeing the beauty of Jesus in that passage? Is it going on a walk and just thanking God for the week that was and looking forward to the week ahead? Beyond spending time with God, what restores your soul? What do you get to do on, a, on the Sabbath that you don't necessarily get to do on the rest of the week? Do you get to paint? Do you get to do photography? Do you get to write? Do you get to do woodworking? Do you get to quilt? Do you get to knit? Do you get to do online shopping? <laughs> Whatever the case might be. What is it that restores your soul? All of us are going to have different relationships with work. Some of us are retirees, some of us are students, some of us work many hours a week, some of us work as little as we can get away with. But once a week, God is saying, I want to invite you into something special. I want to give you a glimpse of heaven and that you would capture what is going to take place for the rest of eternity, where you give rest to your body, your soul, and your mind. My friends, it's a game changer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the book of Luke. Thank you for us seeing where Jesus is and how he's walking and engaging and doing different things. As we talk about making disciples and as we talk about rest and as we talk about Sabbath, that we would recognize that you have something so great in store for us. And while our world keeps telling us to do more and to have more activities and to keep ourselves busy, that we would recognize that one day a week, we need to slow down. God, forgive us who are working regularly seven-day weeks. Help us to be captured by the imagination and the beauty of what it means to slow down and to enjoy you, to enjoy our friends, to enjoy being with others, and to rest. And God, we pray that you would restore our body, you would restore our mind, that you would restore our souls for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face so brightly shine upon you as you recognize even now, here on earth, we are given a glimpse of heaven on a regular basis. God bless everyone. We'll see you next week.